Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. My friend's father was called Jack Haifman, and Jack Haifman had a vision. He was a salesman, and he was very good at his job. He worked for the Goodyear Tire Company selling tires. And as a salesman, he knew the power of the future on the present day. His company used to set sales targets every year uh, with incentives for reaching them. And Jack was a good salesman. He did very well. At one time, he managed the largest uh, tire account of the company. Then he branched out on his own, started his own business. And he bought a marina, which he ran, and he used to sell boats. And when he went into business for himself, he set himself a goal. On the day that he retired, he would be able to go to the Mercedes-Benz dealer and buy an SL Coupe. He would take cash, walk in, plonk the cash down on the desk and drive the car home. Retired. He even went to visit the factory in Germany where the cars were made and he saw the assembly line just outside Stuttgart. And while he was there, he got a large picture of this dream car, had it framed, took it back home to America, and hung it over the back door of the house. So every day when he left for work, he, the last thing he saw as he walked out of the house was the picture. And it reminded him of his great goal. It gave inspiration and motivation for his work that day, selling boats. You see, he knew that whatever you hope for in the future determines how you live in the present. Your vision of the future shapes your life now. So what is your vision? Perhaps you came to Britain to find a better life. Perhaps like Ray, you came to Manchester for education. Perhaps you have a vision of a big house full of children. I'll just say, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Perhaps you have a vision of life that's a bit like an episode of Friends, just going on like that all the time. Whatever it is, I'm pretty sure that right now, we all have a vision of the future. Maybe we haven't really brought it to the surface or articulated it, but it's in there somewhere, and it's shaping your life right now. So it is absolutely imperative that we get the right vision, isn't it? You need the right vision for your life, a vision that's great enough for your soul. You need a vision that is made in heaven, not made in China or made in Hollywood. And God has given us such a vision in his word, the Bible, in the work of a prophet, and his name was Isaiah. Have a look with me again in your Bible at chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to preach for five minutes on the first two words, the vision. (laughs) Prophets were a special group of people in the life of God's people, the Israelites. Their job was to tell people the word of God, to speak God's words to human, human beings and to apply those words to all of life. And they, so they spoke to the people from God. And the great prophets, whose words we have recorded for us in the Bible, were actually inspired by God himself. The word of God came to them with power and authority and they took it and it, as it were, like a messenger, they delivered what they'd been given. And Isaiah was given a lot, 66 chapters worth. And these prophets were fearless 
They called everyone back to account. They called kings back to the covenant relationship with God. But perhaps the greatest of all the prophets was this man, Isaiah, son of Amos. He has been called the prince of prophets. Isaiah gave, got a, a vision from God in the midst of history. And it is a great, grand vision. And it's worth living by. A vision in history. Now, if you had an urgent message to communicate to someone, I wonder how you would communicate it. They said that when the Titanic uh, struck the iceberg and started to fill with water, for quite a while, nobody, most people didn't know what was going on because it was such a huge vessel. So it could sustain quite a bit of flooding before anyone realized. And when the word started to go out, as I've heard, some people laughed and thought that the messengers were joking. How could anyone sink a ship like this? If you had an urgent message to give, how would you communicate it? Would you write a letter? Draft a serious legal statement? Well, God gives Isaiah not a letter or a legal statement, but a vision. A vision. And this is the kind of thing that he writes later in the book. Let me read a little bit of this out to you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You get the feel of it? And this is a guy with poetry in his soul. Now, I know some people curl up when they hear the word poetry. Memories of uh, William Wordsworth and in the GCSE class, and you, you ran a long way away from that. I know we've got a lot of engineers and scientists in the church, but let me just say, poetry is a bit like music. The more you, you just immerse yourself in it, the more it, it gets into and comes alive. And, and Isaiah's way of communicating is more powerful than if he'd just written us a letter. God gave him a vision, and I think the reason is a vision will purify our imagination will purify our imagination. So our minds and hearts and imagination are full of visions that we've been given by the world around. But this is one from God. And it will purify us and help us to live. You see, this imagery has power that just propositions lack. If you give someone a powerful image, it can capture their heart and their mind. And capturing the imagination is essential to persuade somebody about the truth. God gave Isaiah a vision. And it's a vision in the midst of history. Read with me again from verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is a vision that's given to real people living in a real place in real time. And it's identified here as uh, in the, the reign of these four monarchs in the kingdom of Judah. And so Isaiah's career spans roughly 50 years. 
And to quote a great jazz standard, at this stage, things ain't right. Let me give you a brief recap of the story of the Bible so far, the previous 685 pages. We're going to do this in three minutes. We start at the beginning of creation. God makes a perfect world, and he creates everything that is, the cosmos, the stars, the ladybirds, the atoms, the crab nebulae, whatever that is. And he makes a human being, a man, Adam, and he puts him on his world to reign it under him as a kind of a little king under the great king. And he, he, out of Adam, he makes a woman, and Adam and Eve are set up as the first human couple to reign and rule over God's world, to fill it, to subdue it and tame it and develop it, to create civilizations and build cities and, and fill the earth with the good rule of God. And, and God loves them, and he, he, he makes, they move into a furnished apartment. But on page two of the Bible, it all goes pear-shaped, because Adam and Eve reject the rule of God, turn inwards, listen to the voice of the serpent, and they break God's law, and they break God's heart. And so the rest of the Bible, from there right to the end, is a story of how the loving creator is going to get his world back, and how human beings are going to find their home. And the first big move in that journey back is in chapter 12 of Genesis. God calls Abraham and gives him a promise that he will, be, will have a great name and be a great nation, live in a great land, and that the whole world will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And so from that point on, the clock's ticking and we're tra tracking the story along. How is God going to keep this promise and get his world back and we get to, to have our home with him again? And it's, so it's a story, most of the Bible is a story of one people, this people of Israel, as it goes from Abraham to his descendants moving to Egypt because of famine, where they grow numerous for 400 years until there's several hundred thousand of them. They're oppressed by the king, Pharaoh. God delivers them with a mighty hand. They come out in an exodus. They come through the waters of the Red Sea in a moment of new creation, and they come after 40 years living as nomads in the, in the wilderness, to a land that God had promised to give them way, way back. And they come into the land, originally living under judges and then under kings. The first king, Saul, was a, a kind of a worldly king. He was, he was, it was all about image. He was a big, impressive, handsome guy, but his heart wasn't after God. God chose David, and, and he focuses his promises down on David, that David will be the one through whom God blesses the world. And so David, who is a man after God's own heart, carries the kingship on. And in his son's lifetime, Solomon, it looks like the promises are all going to come true because it's their golden day. It's a time of great prosperity. It's a time of great, a time of great influence. Solomon has hundreds of horses and chariots and gold and silver and plenty. And he's very wise. And it all looks, everything's rosy. But Solomon's heart uh, is not after God. And so he sows the seeds of the destruction of the kingdom. And in his son's generation, the kingdom is, is divided, tragic divide, into two parts, north and south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. North is Israel, ten tribes. South is Judah, two tribes. And these two kingdoms go along. And the north is particularly bad. There's hardly any good kings. Uh, they, they pursue idol worship instead of the true God. And God brings judgment against them, and they fall. And the south totters on for over 100 years more. A bit more up and down, a bit more inconsistent. And Isaiah's ministry is coming in that, that last section where the southern kingdom is 
is teetering. And he's warning them and saying, come on, come back to God. Don't pursue these sins and things that you've indulged in. Remember what's happening in the north. And Isaiah's ministry is in that context, that real historical context. He sees the failure of the north. He issues the warnings. Now, you may have noticed when Alex was reading our passage today that Isaiah isn't trying to make friends. He's not really what you call a people pleaser. He's not an entertainer. You know, he's, he, he might not have been a great dinner party guest. He is a fiery prophet. He's a messenger in a time of national crisis. He's like one of those people running around the Titanic and saying, come on, get to the lifeboats. And they're all going, ah, more champagne. You see, the issues that Isaiah raises are deadly serious because they're matters of spiritual life and death. His vision, therefore, is at times going to be really unsettling and really challenging to us because he's a surgeon. And if a surgeon's going to deal with the tumor in your life, he's going to keep cutting until the job is done. What would you think of a surgeon who knew you were in trouble, that you had an illness, but didn't tell you the full story because he didn't want you to get upset? What would you think of a surgeon who stopped cutting partway through the operation because it was hurting, but he left cancerous tissue behind? Isaiah, he's a surgeon, and he's going to cut until we see the wretchedness of our hearts, the wickedness that's inside us deep down, because it needs to be exposed, rooted out, and dealt with, and burned away. And that will prepare us for the good news, which is wonderfully glorious. Because Isaiah speaks uh, not just of, a, of a, a future for that people, although he does, but a future that is unspeakably glorious. And in our, our series slide, which Jez has created and I absolutely love, you see that this thing here, which is the wilderness, and maybe we can get the coloring worked out, but the wilderness and the desert experience, and out of it is bursting and, and, and a super uh, extravagant new creation of of beauty and joy, and that's where the book is going to end up. Now, first 39 chapters of Isaiah are emphasizing judgment. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah are emphasizing bright hope, although there's, there's interchange between the sections. One more thing before we get into our text today, and that's this. Isaiah is speaking to three audiences. The first audience is the people of his day. He's saying, you guys in Judah, turn back to God or exile is coming. The second audience is actually the people of the next few generations who are going into exile, and he foresees that. But to them, he speaks a word of great comfort and hope. But the third horizon is really exciting because Isaiah sees things about Jesus Christ that could only have been seen if God himself had revealed them to him. He speaks of the Messiah, Jesus, the suffering servant. And more than anyone else, he gets a glimpse into just how great the Lord Jesus is going to be. So he's speaking to these three different uh, horizons at the same time. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to chapter 1. We begin at the beginning. And here Isaiah sets the scene, and it is dark. To quote Shakespeare's Hamlet, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, or the state of Judah. It's a tale of rebellion, religion, and repentance. Firstly, rebellion. Read with me, will you? Verses 1 to 9. Verse 2 to 9. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows his master. The donkey is owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation. See, this people that God has chosen as his very own and brought them to himself, he carried them through the wilderness, gave them a land, gave them his good law. These people have turned their backs on the living God and spurned him. They've rejected his ways and they've lived just like the world around them. Verse 21, Isaiah says, the faithful city has become a prostitute. In the Bible, not living for God is often described in these graphic terms of like prostitution, of being unfaithful and, 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 and having no boundaries and no commitment to God. Verse 21 also speaks about violence and injustice in the society. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Verse 23, it's become a place of bribery and financial corruption. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. And there's no social justice there. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. See, in in the ancient world, it was a cruel and dark place. But Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. It had wonderful laws. And if those laws had been kept, they would have been a place in the world where there was no poverty. You couldn't get a mortgage there. You had your own land. You farmed it, but you didn't farm it right to the boundary. You left space at the edge where the poor could go and get food for free. It was a place where there was justice. It was to be a place that was unique in the world, but they became just like the world around them. Verse 29, you'll be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. Worshipping around sacred trees is the kind of thing that the nations around them did. They've gone away from the pure worship of God. They've copied the world around. You see, God chose this people to be his very own. He gave them his law so that they might live clean and beautiful and righteous lives. And he gave them these commandments. And Jesus said the greatest commandment in the whole Old Testament is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So God's law is a law of love. Loving him, loving other people. And the people of God have recklessly turned away from it. The culture of the nations has seeped into their culture until they're no different. And so their society is loveless. There's something so perverse about this. In verses 5 to 8, there's a pathetic scene. This idea of a being beaten in a body that's afflicted and, and yet it's not being looked after. It's going to be le- left to rack and ruin. Then in verse 8, the idea, somebody said, this is a funny image. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field. Think of a flimsy old shed in an allotment. You know, one storm, that shed's going down. He says, the great nation, the great city of Jerusalem, and that's basically what you're left like. Fragile, alone. Will you not turn back? And yet, these people are hardened in their rebellion. They won't turn back. They'd rather be beaten than go back to God. It's pathetic. Like Milton's devil in Paradise Lost. They would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And perhaps the worst thing about all this is the sheer ingratitude. 
Such a great offense. God's children have been given so much by him, and yet they've rebelled. They've turned away from him. They've copied the world around. Isaiah says, you know what? You're like an ox or a donkey. In fact, you're even worse, because even an ox and a donkey know how to get home. They know their way back to the owner's manger. They know the field they belong in, even though they're a dumb animal. But God's children fail to acknowledge their father. Now, this is heavy stuff. Where does it connect with our lives? I think it connects with our lives at several points. And some of us, most of us, should be feeling uncomfortable. Two areas in particular are highlighted here. Firstly, our ingratitude to God. Many people scarcely give God the time of day in their busy lives. But when things go wrong, they're quick to blame him, stamp their feet, and get angry. But just think for a moment of the countless gifts God has showered upon your life and how little you have repaid him. God doesn't owe you anything. Our ingratitude and also our carelessness. Our carelessness. Friends, how careful are we to live a life of pure devotion to our Heavenly Father? How much attention does he get from you in prayer and meditating on his word compared to your friends and your entertainment? How ruthless are you with sin, eager to get rid of anything in your life that might offend him? How deep is your love of neighbors, of those around you, especially the poor? Our culture is relentlessly self-centered, moaning, ungrateful, and narcissistic. What about us? How much of your time is given joyfully in loving service to others? What proportion of your money do you give away? How do you treat the poor? Christian friends, is your life any different from the world around? But there's something worse than their rebellion, because we haven't got to the depths yet. Something worse is their religion. Their religion. Verses 10 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now on the surface of it, this is a pretty strange critique because God actually commanded them to do all these things. And they're doing it. He commanded them to give sacrifices as a way of saying thank you. And they're bringing bulls. Now, bulls are pretty expensive, you know. They're bringing great stuff to the temple. They're bringing incense. And in they come, burning incense and looking good and wearing their Sunday best. And they're praying. Loads of prayers, says. Lots and lots of prayers. And they're observing the religious calendar. They've got these different festivals that they have to keep. Three times a year, they're going on pilgrimage and they're doing all of this stuff. And it, all of these things were commanded by God himself. And here he says, I detest it. These sacrifices give me no pleasure. Their presence, your presence, people, is obnoxious. You're trampling into my courts, walking mud into the house. Your festivals are worthless. I hate them. He doesn't even want to listen to their prayers. Why? Because it's empty. Because it's false. Because it's hypocrisy. It is not backed up by a life of love. It is a performance. They think they can live like hell all week and pretend to be godly on 
the Sabbath. They think they can pay God off with religious rituals, and he hates it. Imagine a single mother. She's only got one child, and she loves him with all her heart. She's so poor, she works two jobs to provide for him. She works all day in a factory, and at night she cleans offices. She washes his clothes and cooks his meals. She listens to his problems and encourages him in everything he does. When he falls over, she picks him up. When he weeps, she wipes away his tears. She's always there for him. She's mum. She gives up her comfort. She gives up her life for his. He wants to go to university, so she takes another job to pay for it. She pays and pays and pays and gives and gives. She's so proud when he finishes law school and he moves to the city and gets a professional job. And she has a photograph of his graduation ceremony there on the sideboard. There he is with his graduation robes and that silly hat that they wear. And there she is standing at his side, proud and worn out. But what would you think if the son lived like this. He embraces the life that his mother has provided for him and he lives it to the full. But he never phones her up. He never even sends a text. He never visits. She never sees him. He never asks how she is. He never inquires after her. He never sends her a card. But he does send her a check in the post once a month. What would you think of such a son? Is it right that the mother gave her life in return for a check each month? Or does she deserve relationship? You know the answer. You would think, shame on him. And it's the same with you and me and our Heavenly Father. He is not interested in religious rituals for their own sake. That's like a check in the post. He wants your heart. He wants to relate to you, and he deserves it. Isaiah's challenge is scalding. It leads us to take a good hard look at ourselves and realize our poverty, how easily we compromise with the world around us, how small our hearts are when it comes to love and compassion, how shameful for us to think that for one moment we can live a selfish life and pay God off with religious rituals, whether it's repeating prayers in a mindless way or dutifully turning up at confession or going on a pilgrimage, or serving on the Sunday rotor in an evangelical church. He's your father. He deserves better, Isaiah would say. You see what this means? We have to repent of two things. One, our sins. And two, our damnable good works. Whew. Those of you who are new, we don't do this kind of sermon every week, but the text demanded it. He's critiqued their rebellion. He's critiqued their religion. But finally, there is always bright hope just around the corner in Isaiah. And he says there's hope for repentance. Repentance means turning back. Look with me at verses 16 and onwards. Wash Make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So here it is. It's an invitation 
God makes the first move here, as he always does. And he makes us an offer. He makes us an offer that we could not have actually generated for ourselves and we couldn't do. It's an offer of a cleansing that's so deep it transforms our whole life. He says, your sins are as red as crimson. You know, the deepest dye. But they can be made white as snow. It's a fresh start. If you imagine looking at the the sky on a summer's day and there's not a cloud in the sky between you and God. It's a blue sky. It's clear because he's made the way open for you to relate to him. And with all of that, he gives us a new vision of a new world and a new way of life. To live the life we were made for. A life of love for him and love for one another. Let me finish by telling you what Jack Haifman did when he retired. He never bought that car. He saved the money, but he never bought it. In his 60s, he got something better. He found Jesus Christ. Or rather, Jesus found him. He got a better vision for life than a sports car. That there is a way to have even the most crimson stains and sins washed away for the human soul to be ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven. For your relationship with God to be clear, not a cloud in the sky, because the cross of Jesus made a way. His blood atones for every sin. That's what Jack Haifman discovered, and he lived for Christ until his 80s when he went to his eternal rest. I think we've got to acknowledge that uh, we have rebelled against God. I think we've got to acknowledge that sometimes we've used religion to try and pay him off. Friends, this is none of that. Let's clear the decks today. Let's pray for a new start. And perhaps if you are a person who's been looking into the Christian faith all this time, and today is the day, you know you want to, you want to follow Jesus, then pray with me now, will you? You can turn to him now. Let's repent together. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Our Heavenly Father, we confess before you now our sins, which are many. Sins of commission, sins of omission. There is no health in us. And yet we thank you from the bottom of our hearts, that looking on us, you you look on us with a fatherly heart, the heart of a good shepherd, with kindness for our weakness and frailty, and your mercy and love and faithfulness never run dry. You're full of grace. And we've seen what Isaiah only caught a glimpse of. We've seen Jesus. Come again, renew us, we pray. And if there's one person here today who wants to follow Christ, help him or her now to walk across the boundary and welcome them into your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net